You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, well, good morning. Uh, I'll invite you to come back to your seats. You guys were very active in your greeting one another this morning. That's good. Maybe the warmer weather is like, you know. Thanks for being with us this morning here in the sanctuary. Also, those of you on the live stream, welcome. Uh, We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, My name's Jeremy Edelman. I'm the senior pastor here at River City Church, and I want to welcome you here. Whether you're a guest with us this morning or you've been part of the church for many years, we're glad that you're with us, and we're thankful that you're here. Now, if you have been with us, you know that we, each week when I preach, I begin with our mission statement, and many of you could probably say it with me, and I'm actually going to ask you to do that. So I keep, I keep saying every week, I'm hoping it's kind of getting filtered into your minds, and so we'll begin with our mission statement, reminding ourselves who we are and why we exist. Uh, as a church, we exist, go ahead with me, to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. That's our mission together. That's why we exist. That's why we gather together. Each week, remind ourselves of our mission because each week we enter with fresh weariness from our week, and we want to be renewed in relationship with Jesus. And that weariness can come from a lot of different places. For some of you this morning, it comes because of the busyness of your last week. For others of you, it comes because you've witnessed the brokenness that exists in the world. For some of you, it exists because you felt the burden of religion, and still others because you have been weighed down by the idols and the sin that entangles us. But for whatever reason we might feel that weariness, uh, we acknowledge, we recognize, we remind ourselves that we're renewed in relationship with Jesus. See, we don't claim to be a perfect church, and this church isn't for perfect people, but it's also not a place of despair because we have a strong and sure hope in that invitation from Jesus that we will be renewed in relationship with Him. And so we gather to do that, to know the refreshing presence of Jesus as we help one another to be with Jesus, to become like Him in our lives and to be sent by Him into the world. And so as we begin, let me offer this welcome in the name of Jesus to set our minds right as we hear the word preached. And so to all of you this morning who are weary, and are in need of rest. To all of you who mourn and need comfort, to all of you who feel worthless, and you're wondering this morning if God cares about you, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, And to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. And if you would now open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, that's what will be this morning. So Acts 19, verses 10 through 41, it's 31 verses, it's a pretty big chunk this morning that we're going to tackle, but I'm excited for it. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, feel free to do that hardback black Bible in the back of the pew in front of you, that'll be page 928. 
This morning we're continuing in our third part in the book of Acts. We've called this series, or this portion of the series, The Gospel Multiplies. And, and what we're seeing happen is the way that the disruptive force of the gospel, it's, it's working its way into all sorts of new places. And in the book of Acts, Paul, the main character here in the latter part of Acts, he goes on three different missionary journeys before he eventually goes to Jerusalem en route to Rome, which we'll see in the coming weeks. And we're here in the middle of the third journey. And Luke, the author of Acts, has given us a lot of details about what happens in this city of Ephesus. And in many ways, the stories that we read about this morning are some of the climactic points of Paul's missionary journeys. And in a way that no human or spiritual force can resist, we will see the way that the gospel turns the city of Ephesus upside down. And so let's pray together before we turn to God's word. We'll ask God for his help. Father, as we open our Bibles, we do, we ask for your help. We ask that your spirit would do that which only your spirit can do in us. Open our eyes that we would see and behold the wondrous things in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the year 2000, Reed Hastings, the owner and founder or co-founder of Netflix, he met with some executives from Blockbuster to sell his new DVD by mail startup for $50 million. Blockbuster said no. And now, two decades later, Netflix is worth about $243 billion. If you did the math in your head, that's a 5,000-time increase in value. But just 10 years after Blockbuster said no to Netflix, it was filing for bankruptcy. And to put vinegar into the wound of all those Blockbuster executives that said no, Netflix recently produced a documentary about the demise of Blockbuster called The Last Blockbuster. Now, there were many factors that contributed to the downfall of this once behemoth video rental company, but undeniably, one of them was the disruptive force of the innovations brought on by the streaming of services like Netflix. The once innovative company themselves, Blockbuster, could not ignore the powerful impact of Netflix upon the market. And as much as Blockbuster may have wanted to deny the growing impact of Netflix, by the time they realized how disruptive it would be, they were already getting left behind. And this is not an unfamiliar story in the history of the world. Whether it's the impact of Airbnb on the hotel industry or the iPod on the music industry, we see the way that these disruptive forces impact the world in which we live. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that like these disruptive innovations, in fact, I think in a more significant way than these disruptive innovations, the gospel is a powerful force in the world. It can reshape the life of a person and also break strongholds in regions and in cities. And one of the key themes in the passage that, that we'll see emerge is this theme of power. Ephesus was a power center in its region, and it had powerful systems at work within it, mostly centering around the goddess known as Artemis. And as the disruptive force of the gospel comes into Ephesus and interrupts the powers that existed, it has all sorts of effects on this city. It breaks strongholds, it frees people from bondage, it brings peace and purpose to lives, and it draws the attention of new enemies. Now, something in us recoils when I use words like power and force, because we've witnessed the ways that abuse and, or the abuse of authority and influence happens in sinful ways all over our 
culture and society. But Jesus, he didn't come to conquer with an army. He came to conquer through the cross. The disruptive force of the gospel does not work like so many of the power structures in our world. It isn't through coercion and manipulation or privilege. It comes through service and sacrifice and through humility. And here's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. The gospel is a disruptive force in the world. And this is the invitation for all of us. When Jesus disrupts the things that you hold dear, repentance and faith is the only proper response to seeing Jesus as a superior treasure in your life. When Jesus disrupts the things that you hold dear, repentance and faith is the only proper response. The disruptive force of the gospel, it has all sorts of effects on the world. It will change your life. And as it changes more and more people's lives, it will break strongholds in a city and will change the society in which we live. And so if you came in here today and you want to know the sort of peace and purpose that comes through faith in Jesus, it will almost certainly mean a disruption to something about the way that you are currently living. And you can respond in one of two ways. You can repent and have faith in Jesus, or you can resist. And we will see both in our passage this morning. Both responses take place. We're invited to ask ourselves, which one will we choose? Today, we're all being invited, we are all being invited to repent and to become an agent of gospel disruption in the world. So let's jump in the passage. We're going to begin in verse 10, again, page 928 in those pew Bibles. There are really two main episodes or scenes in our passage, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, episode one within our passage, Jesus is a superior treasure. Verse 10, it says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is an important transition verse for us as we continue on. It's referring to the ministry that Paul was already having in Ephesus that we learned about last week when Michael preached. Paul was reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus, it says in verse 9. He's teaching the disciples the way of Jesus. As a result, the word of the Lord is spreading throughout Asia. And then we see in verse 11, that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. We see here, right at the beginning of this passage, in verses 10 through 12, we're meant to see that Paul, he's hard at work in ministry, and it is ultimately successful because God was doing something extraordinary through him. This is a good paradigm for us. We will work hard at the life that God has given us, the responsibilities He's given us, and He will do His kingdom work through us to whatever degree He sees fit for the occasion. And on this particular occasion, God wanted His power to be on display in Ephesus. And I think part of that is because, as I've already said, uh, there's this confluence of power structures in Ephesus. If people were going to see Jesus as a superior treasure, as a greater treasure in their life, then God deemed it necessary to put his power on display and make it clear that he is worthy of their worship. And so people are being healed, evil spirits are being cast out, all because God is at work through Paul. And people took notice. And as so often happens, people tried to copy them. But they tried to copy the method without understanding the message. They wanted the power of Jesus without actually having faith in Jesus. But what what we'll see is that you cannot call upon the power of the name in which you do not believe. 
We'll pick it up in verse 13. It says that then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Whenever I read this story about the seven sons of Sceva, and the evil spirit looks at the sons, and he answers back, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I just cannot help but imagine the fear that must have set in among those brothers. Here they are, face to face with this evil spirit that clearly does not respect them. The evil spirit respects Jesus. He even knows Paul's name. But who are these fools who are trying to invoke the name of Jesus in whom they do not believe? And the man in whom the evil spirit was mastered all seven brothers and sent them out of the house naked. Now, I don't know if any of you watch any combat sports like boxing or MMA, but after the fight, unless there's a knockout and it's really clear who wins, the judges have to score the fight. Sometimes it's really clear and you get a unanimous decision. Other times there's a split decision and then debate that ensues after it about who should have won. Well, in this case, in case anyone here was wondering, I would argue that when one man masters seven and sends them out of the house naked, we know who won. Even if they got in a few good punches, the guy who leaves wounded and with no clothes on just lost. That's what Luke wants us to see, that it is so clear who's more powerful in this passage. The evil spirit was clearly more powerful than these seven sons. And as I said earlier, Ephesus operated as a power center, and the disruptive force of the gospel is coming in to shake up the power structures of this world. And what emerges through this story is a really clear hierarchy of power. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ at the top of the list. And then we see Paul empowered by Jesus overcoming disease and demons. Now, the seven sons thought that they could manipulate that same power, but the disruptive force of Jesus is not something that we can manipulate. And so, in this hierarchy, the evil spirits come in next. And then the seven sons, relying on their own strength, are the least powerful. Through all of this, what we're meant to see is that the superior power of the gospel of Jesus has come into the world, and it overpowers the powers of this world. And if that's true, then Jesus deserves our worship, because he is infinitely greater than evil spirits or itinerant exorcists. Now, word spreads about this beating that the seven sons of Sceva took, and the results from there are truly remarkable. What we see in verse 17 is that this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. The impact of this event is that word spreads. When, when an event like this occurs, word's going to spread, and people become convinced of how great Jesus truly is and how dangerous the rulers and principalities of the world around us can be. Fear falls on them because now they're all a little bit worried that they might get attacked by an evil spirit. There's an honest fear about the forces of this world, but there's an even greater fear and reverence for the name of Jesus. People realize that there are forces in the world that are dark and demonic, like this evil spirit, but there's a greater power in the world, and his name is Jesus. 
The result is that the name of Jesus was exalted. And here's what's happening. People are seeing Jesus high and lifted up for who he truly is. Their blinders are falling off. They are coming to understand his true nature and his power, his benevolence and his grace. And when people see Jesus with a clear understanding, when their eyes are opened, they cannot help but love what they see. And so Jesus is worshiped, admired, and praised. That's what it means when it says that his name is extolled. Dalton and I have actually been talking about this lately. We're making it our prayer that here at River City Church, we would see Jesus high and lifted up. Blinders would be removed. And that when we do, when we see him, that we would come to love what we see and that it would change the way that we live. That's what we see happening here in Ephesus. Verse 18 It says that also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The result of this awakening that's happening in Ephesus is that believers come forward, they confess their sins, they bring their practices into the light. Some of them are new believers. Others have been following Jesus for some time, but maybe were still dabbling in practices that were contrary to their faith. And together they confess these idols and sins, and then they have a bonfire with their magic books. And we read that the value of these books is 50,000 pieces of silver, which some estimate today would be about $6 million. They had come to see that their practices of magic and demonic influence, when compared with Jesus, they were foolish things to give their allegiance to. They saw Jesus high and lifted up, and in their love of their Savior, they repented of their former ways and became fully devoted to Jesus. And so it says in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What an incredible first scene we have in our passage today. Verses 10 and 20 kind of bookend this story in which the word of God spreads throughout Asia and prevails mightily. I think here's what we're meant to see. Here's maybe some application from this first story. First, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most disruptive force in the history of the world. And like Blockbuster was unable to resist the crashing wave of Netflix into the video industry, there is no way to stop the rising tide of the gospel upon the hearts of those whose eyes are opened to the reality of Jesus. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. Is God doing that in your heart right now? Has the tide of the gospel been rising in your heart? Are your eyes being opened to the goodness of Jesus If you walked into this room as someone who has not yet trusted in Jesus as Lord, you do not need to walk out the same way. And this is the good news of the gospel that Paul is preaching. You don't save yourself any more than the sons of Sceva could withstand the evil spirit. The difference between Paul and the sons of Sceva is not that Paul had authority. The difference is that Paul had faith in Jesus, and Jesus has authority. In the same way, your hope of salvation does not rest on your own ability to live a perfect record in life because Jesus lived the perfect record on your behalf. Your hope of salvation is not because you have the power to save yourself. The power is in the message of the gospel because Jesus saves. So if the tide of the gospel is rising upon your heart, if you feel the Spirit even now warming your affections for Jesus, 
opening your eyes to see this marvelous truth, then through repentance and faith, you can be saved. That is Jesus' invitation to you this morning. And the second thing that we see here in the first scene of our text is that when Jesus is high and lifted up and when people come to love what they see, then it will live differently. It will affect the way that we live. In this passage, that means that new and long-time believers come together in repentance and faith. They brought their idols and their sin into the light. They burned their books and they worshiped Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's our invitation today. In some ways, it will be very painful, and in other ways, it will be remarkably freeing. And I'm trusting that even now, God's Spirit is bringing to mind an idol or a practice that you need to throw onto the proverbial bonfire. Now, there are many, and God's Spirit is hopefully rising something to your mind even now, but let me suggest one for you, and it is your busyness and your hurry. The staff and I, we're reading a book together right now, Uh, So this is on my mind. The book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And John Mark shares in this book his own journey with busyness and hurry, and he makes this really important observation. When we live a life of hurry, we usually don't have time to be present with God and with the people around us. Busyness and hurry become idols that demand our allegiance, just like the magic of Artemis required the allegiance of these first century Ephesians. And at some point, we begin to realize that hurry is not just a way of living, but it is actually competing with our worship of Jesus. At one point in the book, John Mark, he references this recent study from the Harvard Business Review, which observed that leisure used to be a sign of wealth in America, but now busyness has become a status symbol. And Harvard Business Review saw that you could actually observe this in the shift of marketing among luxury brands. They show or sorry, they now show wealthy people in boardrooms instead of relaxing at beaches. They show wealthy people getting late-night drinks at trendy clubs instead of sitting by the pool. Now, I'm not sure how much convincing you need to see that we are too busy, hurried, and distracted as a people, that it's undermining relationships and happiness, that it's ruining souls. Busyness and hurry are idols, and they are stealing from our worship of Jesus. Like the Ephesians, my invitation to you is to repent of the idol, to look to Jesus, to see that he is a greater treasure. And if you find yourself on the merry-go-round of a distracted life, if you are already right now making plans for what you need to get to the, at the grocery store after church today, thinking about what tasks you need to get done this week, making a note of what events you need to cancel because you have too much going on, all the while this week spending too much time on your phone and not getting enough sleep. But then you wonder why it is difficult to be present with the Lord and with the people in your life. Now let me just note, this is true for the vast majority of people in our city. If you wake up and find yourself on this merry-go-round of busyness and hurry, do you know what? No one is making you stay on. You can slow down. You can get off the merry-go-round. And this is what's so subversive about the way of Jesus. Sometimes his disruptive force in the world is most clearly seen when his people simply stop believing the lie that we need to be like the rest of the world. You don't. You can repent of your hurried life. You can put your planner on the burn pile and take a step toward a more simple and worshipful life. Now, for you, it may not be a hurried life that God's Spirit is calling you to repent of this morning, right? That's just one suggestion. Maybe for you it's your pride, 
or it's an addiction, or it's your struggle with anger, whatever it is, when you see Jesus as the superior treasure that he is, the only appropriate response is to repent of your competing idols and to renew your faith in Jesus. Now, let's take a look at episode two. And what we'll see is that this sort of movement, it generates resistance. When the disruptive force of Jesus begins to impact people, and when enough people choose the way of Jesus over the way of the world, it will have an impact on our society. And not everyone is going to like the results. So here's the deal. When Jesus starts to disrupt that, disrupt that thing that you hold dear, there's really only two responses. Repentance, like we saw in the first scene, or resistance, which is what we're about to see. So let's pick up the story again. Verses 21 and 22, they give us some travel information that foreshadows the rest of the book of Acts. And so just for the sake of time, we're going to jump past that to verse 23. It says that about this time, or about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded, persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. The gospel here is having so much impact on the city of Ephesus that it's affecting even the economic systems. Ephesus was known for its temple to Artemis. The temple here is very large. It received a lot of money. It, it loaned out money. It almost functioned like a bank. It had become this economic engine for its city and the region. Tradesmen then created small idols in the form of Artemis, and they made a profit by, by selling all those idols. And Paul must have used a similar argument to the one that he uses in Ephesus, which you can go back and read that later if you want. But he explains how foolish it is to worship a God made from human hands. And when you really start to think about it, you understand truly how foolish that is for us to worship gods that we create ourselves. Demetrius, though, he's seeing all of this take place. He begins to see that it's going to have an impact on his business. He gets others riled up along with him. And they cite two primary motivations for opposing Paul and the message of the gospel. The first is because it will impact their income. They're going to lose money if Paul gains too much influence. Never mind if Jesus actually is the superior treasurer. They don't want their in income to be interrupted. The second is that it will impact their significance. Ephesus was known for its temple, and if Artemis is considered as nothing, she will lose her magnificence and all of Ephesus along with her. And what we see here in Ephesus, which we also see throughout the history of the world, is that strongholds can form around a city or a region. There are many powers here that colluded to keep Artemis and the idol trade alive, spiritual forces that wanted to keep people oppressed under the lie of this false god, economic forces from all those who would profit from the temple and these auxiliary trades, social and cultural forces that wanted the significance of Ephesus, which was tied to the magnificence of Artemis, to be maintained, and political forces that often don't care about who's right, but want to maintain order and authority. 
And when a confluence of powers like this comes together to keep people oppressed under a false vision of the world, they will fight to maintain their power. And you can imagine how these strongholds will form, even still today, around things like I was just talking about, busyness and hurry, for example. And in the face of those forces, we then see how truly powerful the gospel is to be able to come in and disrupt these strongholds. That's the kind of power that we're meant to see in the gospel. It has the sort of disruptive force that will change a society, which we've even seen throughout history. Like in the case of William Wilberforce, who through his Christ-centered convictions fought for the abolition of slavery in England, and as a result, the power of the gospel reshaped a nation and a people. But when you upset the currently established powers in the world, there's going to be resistance. We can expect that. We see it here. When the tradesmen heard the warning from Demetrius about the disruption that the gospel was, was causing, we see what happens in verse 28. They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I read that at kind of a fast pace. I wanted you to feel even the confusion that was existing in the city. We're meant to sense that. In these verses, we see the sort of madness that comes when we resist the gospel. They're dragging various peoples forward to try and give an account. None of them get listened to or heard. Many of the people had gathered without any clue as to why they were there. There's loads of details in here that we could explain further, but ultimately, what I think Luke wants us to see, what I want you to see is that when the strongholds of a city and a region start to get disrupted by the gospel, it will be resisted by those who have the most to lose. And people will not always respond in a rational or a gracious way. After order starts to be restored, the clerk stands up and quiets the crowd. In verse 35, he says, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Finally here, after several hours of madness, the town clerk gets up, he quiets the crowd, and he explains to them in a very rational way that Paul and his companions had done nothing wrong. If they had done something illegal, there were ways to deal with that. And in verse 38, he suggests that Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen bring it to the proconsul if they want to complain, but that they are dangerously close to upsetting the Roman authorities from their riot, that they should disperse immediately. 
And what we see throughout the book of Acts, there's this common pattern in the way that political and legal authorities respond to Paul. Initially, they want to understand why he's being so disruptive, but then they come to realize that he's done nothing illegal. And what they find is that the king that Paul claims to follow has died on a cross. And these Roman officials, they only think of power in terms of physical armies that will impose their will. And Paul worships a dead king with no army. They do not have a category for the type of power and force that the gospel brings. They don't realize that Jesus didn't remain dead, but he's alive and the gospel is at work. So they dismiss the case time and time again. It happened in Philippi. It happened in Corinth. It happens here in Ephesus. It will happen time and again throughout the end of Acts as Paul finds himself on the way to Rome. And I have two applications for us from this second scene before we end. The first is don't be like Demetrius. When Jesus starts to disrupt the things that you hold dear, rather than resist him, repent and worship him. Now, it sounds pretty easy and rather simple, but when you're in the position of Demetrius, you will find it quite difficult because usually it's something that you treasure deeply. Now, I'm not saying that we should not value the things of this earth, but when you treasure something so much that it makes you want to oppose Jesus, you begin to realize that the thing that you treasure most is not Jesus, but that thing that you hold dear. Now, for our church, one of those things could have been this building, but rather than resist, you all responded with faith in Jesus. God has done something supernatural in our hearts, in the hearts of our church, in following His leading even if it means taking steps that are painful. Because here's, here's how this could have gone this last year as we walked through this process together. As it was becoming clear that God was leading us to sell this building and replant in a new location, we could have resisted, like Demetrius, perhaps even for selfish reasons. Now, that's not to say that we did not try to find every viable path to staying, or that upon realizing that God was leading us to sell the Eagle Brook, that it was not incredibly difficult to take that step of faith. What I'm saying is that the result could have been, could have been, it wasn't, could have been a church filled with people who riled one another up and held a public hearing to crucify your leadership. But that's not what you all did. I saw a church blessed with an incredible measure of God's grace and humility respond to the growing conclusion that we are going to sell with a deep trust in the Lord. That is not always the case in churches. And when I tell other pastors about how you all have been responding, they're amazed and they affirm time and again the grace that God has given us. So thank you for listening to Jesus and for not allowing this disruption to become divisive. Here's how I think this passage applies to us today. We don't want to be like Demetrius. And I share the story of our building as a sort of counterexample that could have gone radically different. You all could have been like Demetrius, but you weren't. It's easy to want to resist the work of God when it starts to disrupt the things that we hold most dear. And when God starts to do that to you, don't resist and repent when necessary. Now, the second application for us this morning is to learn how to be an agent of gospel disruption like Paul was here in our passage. That requires great, a great deal of wisdom and courage. It requires courage to be unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It will mean that you speak boldly, telling people about the peace and purpose that can only be found through faith in Jesus. It will also mean that you speak up for the sort of ethical implications of the gospel. It will mean that you confront the gossip 
and you confront the racist. It will mean that you confront the oppressive structures of our society. You will fight for the fatherless and for the oppressed. You will speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Learning to be an agent of gospel disruption also means that as you speak boldly, you do so in a way that is not unnecessarily contrarian. If you get the urge to, to fight, be careful. Paul is both whimsical in the way he does this and bold. We don't want to be unnecessarily contrarian. Time and again, we see that Paul is found in his cases, or his cases to be dismissed by legal authorities because he conducted himself with honor and respect for others. Even while he brought the disruptive force of the gospel to bear upon the places that he went, he always did so in ways that respected those around him. And so, River City Church, let us learn how to be agents of gospel disruption in our city. And let us do so because we have seen Jesus high and exalted. And in seeing him for who he truly is, we have come to love what we see and live in light of that. And that's what we get to do right now together as we share in the bread and the cup at the table of our Lord. At communion, we are meant to see Jesus high and lifted up. That's what we do together. We remind ourselves of this truth. And then in faith, we come together and worship him as we call to mind his broken body in the bread and his shed blood through the cup. Now, practically, if you do not get communion on your way in, just go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our Connections team members will bring that to you. So lift it high, keep it up until they find you. If you're on our live stream, feel free to head to the kitchen, grab a cracker and some juice, and you can join us. You do not need to be a covenant member at River City Church to join us in communion. However, we do ask that you have trusted in Jesus to participate. And I say that not to be unnecessarily exclusive. The gospel is a generous invitation to you. We're not trying to be unnecessarily exclusive, but we want to make it very clear that if you have not trusted in Jesus, the bread and the cup are not going to save you. They don't save. Jesus saves. The bread points to the broken body of Jesus, and the shed blood points to the shed blood of Jesus. And so when we take, when we partake in communion, we're calling to mind the salvation that he has brought. Now, if you walked in the room, as I said earlier, if you walked in the room having rejected Jesus, having not trusted Him as Lord, that can change right now. You can trust in Him today. You can be welcomed into the family of God. The Scriptures tell us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an invitation to you. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Trust in His salvation and you'll be saved. And if God is stirring in your heart, be welcomed into his family through Jesus. For all of us, as we take communion together this morning, uh, we are urged to consider our lives, to examine ourselves, to confess and to repent. And so I'm going to give you time to do that. I'm going to give you a moment of silence, asking God's Spirit to call to mind idols and sin that you need to confess and repent of. And then the joy of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is that when we take the bread and the cup, we can take it in confidence knowing that Christ's blood has washed us clean, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so take that moment of silence, and then we'll remind ourselves of the gospel through the bread and the cup in a moment.
And now as we take communion, receive the good news of the gospel preached over you as we remember the hope that we have in Christ. The scriptures tell us that in the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you eat this bread, remember Christ's body broken for you. The scriptures go on to say that in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As you drink this cup, remember Christ's blood shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you remember Christ's death until he comes. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in seeing our need, you sent your Son. We thank you that Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not, and that through faith, his record is applied to us. We thank you that you remove our sin and you wash us clean. As we took the bread and the cup, may that be a reminder to us of the hope we have in the gospel. I pray that as we read, God, that we would see Jesus for who he truly is, and that it would change the way we live. And this gospel would be a disruptive force in this city and around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.